With statistics showing that around 4 in 10 marriages ultimately end in divorce, many of us will need to know what it involves at some stage in our lives. To help demystify what is involved in the divorce process and to discuss the different considerations involved, we're joined today by Sergit Verdi, a partner and head of the family department here at Palmer's Solicitors, by Sarah Dowie, a solicitor in our family department, and by Kevin Double, a consultant executive. Thank you very much. Um, Kevin, you're going to begin by talking us through the difference between divorce um, and legal separation. Yeah, thank, thank you, Sergeant. Um, well, the simple answer is that uh, divorce dissolves the marriage, whereas separation clearly does not. When uh, parties first separate, there is understandably a great deal of anxiety and often, but not always, uh, an element of acrimony. Some couples are, are able to discuss divorce, uh, any children issues and financial, issue, uh, financial matters on an amicable footing. Other couples simply are unable to engage in any dialogue whatsoever. Uh, I'm often asked, as no doubt you are as well, to consider the advantages and disadvantages of proceeding with the divorce as opposed to legal separation. Unfortunately, there is no uh, definitive answer to this question as divorce and legal separation is usually a matter of personal preference. Uh, you may have one party who has clearly not began processing the fact that the marriage has broken down whereas the other party may already have strongly held views. Following um, separation, it is often advisable to consider carefully the main issues that will shape their family lives moving forward. The two obvious important factors are, of course, the children and finances. Uh, in the event that one or both parties consider separation to be the most appropriate way forward, um, it is of course important to bear in mind that each party will retain their marital status uh, until divorce proceedings are issued. Separation could be formalised either by way of a separation agreement or a judicial separation. A judicial separation uh, would be appropriate where the parties have agreed all aspects of their separation, including the future of the matrimonial home, where the children, if any, should, should reside, contact uh, provisions, and any maintenance uh, provisions for either party and the children. Um, there is usually, a, as, as you know, an additional provision for a consensual divorce upon the second anniversary of the uh, separation. Uh, this list is not exhausted by any means. So, Kevin, if a client were to come in and ask you um, if judicial separation is a good option for you, what would you tell them? Well, a, a judicial separation is generally only initiated if one or both parties have religious convictions uh, that prohibit a divorce or desire some form of financial settlement through the court when there is no element of cooperation between the parties. Uh, without applying at the sorry, that's without applying at the same time to dissolve the marriage. Judicial separation is not actually generally considered to be a favoured um, option, as uh, divorce proceedings will inevitably have to be issued eventually. I think I don't know how many. Uh, judicial separation petitions you have filed in the last, say, 
year, two years, but no. I certainly ha haven't farmed one for, for many years. Um, and I've only done one. Right, okay, so that, that, that gives you a, a rough idea of where we're at then. Um, so, and one very important matter to bear in mind, of course, that if judicial separation petition is, is filed, um, inevitably there's going to have to be a, a, a divorce petition later on, and that, of course, will involve a duplication of costs, and we've all got to be alive to that. Um, in the event that parties consider that the marriage has broken down irretrievably, I would say that it would be sensible um, in those circumstances for one of the parties to initiate divorce proceedings straight away, uh, assuming of course that they have grounds to do so. Uh, we will of course be outlining the grounds on which a divorce can proceed and the general procedures um, a little later on. Uh, in conclusion, um, it is essential that the parties secure the benefit of uh, legal advice as soon as practicable following separation, uh, or indeed in, in contemplation of the separation. Thank you, Kevin. Um, Sarah, you're now going to tell us about the divorce process from start to finish and the timescales involved in completing divorce. Uh, yes, uh, there are separate stages uh, to uh, the divorce. Um, you begin with the uh, petition um, that the other party will file a response, which is called an acknowledgement of service. Uh, there will be the decree NISI, which is an order by the court, and finally the decree absolute. Um, I'll take you through the um, different stages to give you an idea of what to expect, um, and you can initiate divorce proceedings once you've been married for one year. Now, uh, there's only one ground for divorce, and that's the irretrievable breakdown uh, of the marriage, and then you would rely on one of five facts. The first one is adultery. Um, in order for a person to rely on this, they must establish that their partner uh, has um, committed adultery with a person of the opposite uh, sex that you find then intolerable to live with. Often, uh, I find that some people wish to name uh, the other party, but I'm sure the two of you um, give similar advice in that that is not the best way to go forward. It uh, makes that other person a party to the proceedings, um, which can cause delay, but obviously will increase um, costs. From my perspective, the, the most common ground uh, or subground for divorce is unreasonable behaviour. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, particularly for those couples that um, perhaps want to divorce immediately. Yeah. Um, if they are able to establish uh, that the other party has um, behaved unreasonably and they find that intolerable to live with, then often that is a way of them quickening the pace and yeah. you know, regularising the, their separation. Um, we ask that parties provide at least five examples of that unreasonable um, behaviour and it's advisable that the other party sees um, those allegations before your um, divorce petition is, is sent to the court and, and relied upon. Um, there is another uh, fact which is desertion and that is where the um, other party has um, deserted you for a period of two years or more. Um, I have no experience of issuing any divorces on this basis because I find them very rare. I'm sure, it's the they same. Are, they absolutely are. are. Um, parties, when they're looking at separation, often rely on two years separation um, with the other party um, giving uh, their consent, uh, perhaps less acrimonious way um, of going forward. 
um, you have to establish that you've been living separately um, for two years once you send a divorce petition off to the court. Um, the final fact that a person can rely on is five years separation and you would need to establish uh, that you've been separated for five years from the date of sending the petition to the court. Um, you do not need the other party's consent uh, with five years separation which is why some parties often find that uh, a more attractive uh, option. Once you have established the uh, fact that you wish to rely on, the divorce petition um, is drafted. Um, clients will have an opportunity to see that before it's um, sent off. And as we say, if it's unreasonable behaviour, the other party will also have an option to, to review it. But once we're ready, we send it off to the court who will uh, issue the divorce. Essentially means they will just start it off and they'll write to the other party and they have to return their response, which is the acknowledgement of service form. Once that comes back, uh, that person who starts the divorce, called the petitioner, uh, is able to apply for the decree NISI, and that is when a judge will sit down and decide whether or not you're entitled to your divorce based on the fact that you're relying upon. Um, once that's been done, it's all done by paperwork, nobody needs to attend court, and the decree NISI date is set and pronounced, and uh, six weeks and one day after um, the decree NISI has been pronounced, uh, the decree absolute um, is um, set out by the court. Now you need your marriage certificate to start your divorce and what most people don't often realise is that the decree absolutely will replace your marriage certificate so um, my clients are often surprised that they're not going to see their marriage certificate um, again. So, so what happens if, um, if you've lost your marriage certificate? Does well, that pose a problem? No, not at all. Um, luckily we have a, a registered system here um, in the UK which means that parties can apply to the general register office uh, for a copy of their uh, marriage certificate. It's not particularly expensive and it will also be provided fairly quickly. It is a little bit more complicated where parties have been married uh, abroad because you often need the original, you will need the original Absolutely. certificate there, won't you? You um, certainly will, yes. So it's obviously imperative that parties keep their marriage certificates very safe um, because of of these issues. Absolutely, and mm. I've had clients that have lost their, yeah, their I had marriage too. certificates yeah. yes. from overseas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it does uh, obviously make the process a bit longer, but they are uh, able to write off them mm. to the country uh, where they uh, married and get a, a copy of their, mm. of their marriage certificate. Yes. Um, it's important that people understand that that will cause a bit more delay, and if your marriage certificate also doesn't um, appear in, um, in English, it will need to be um, translated. translated. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes. And you can, I think, in very rare cir exceptional circumstances, um, apply without your original marriage certificate. Yes, you certainly can. Which is, so you know, for those that need to, um, where there's a race to issue, it might be because yeah. you want to get jurisdiction here in the UK. Um, you know, there are limited circumstances that the court will allow you to do that. So now that I've um, been through the divorce and procedure, Sergit, can you tell us a bit more about how financial matters are dealt with? Yeah, certainly. Um, it is very important that financial matters are dealt with alongside the divorce and very often we find that that's the most pressing matters that clients, mm -hmm. clients do actually want to deal with. We've been informed by Sarah that the, the divorce process is your legal process to become formally separated but very often parties want to divide up the assets as soon as possible so that they're both able to move on um, with their lives. So upon breakdown of marriage, um, both parties have claims against one another for properties, lump sums, maintenance and pensions. And what we need to do is bring those claims to an end. Um, and there's various ways in which you bring those claims to an end. 
to enable the parties to reach an agreement. So what I'll do first is I'll run through what the options are in relation to dealing with the financial matters and then I'll look at how the courts would deal with the financial matters and the law surrounding that. So very often I'll get clients that will come in that will say that they've engaged in direct discussions between one another. Um, and sometimes it is possible to reach an agreement in that way um, and that would then be turned into a formalised document which is known as a consent order which is lodged with the court. Now that can be lodged with the court when you reach decree eyesight within your divorce proceedings. It cannot be lodged before you reach um, decree eyesight. I mean, one piece of advice that I would give if you are going to be discussing matters directly with one another is that the parties should be satisfied that that all the financial matters have been disclosed to one another. So there really needs to be an element of transparency about what the assets are. Um, because Clients can often be reluctant around that, can't they? I often find that it's not they don't want to know what the other party um, has got, but traditionally in their relationship they haven't been necessarily that open with each other about how much other party's earning and who's got what in savings accounts. And I find that sometimes, you know, when you advise clients, you know, you reach this agreement, but do you know the extent of the financial picture? They say, well, I've got an idea, but I don't know, you know. And sometimes that leads them on to looking at the other options of dealing with the financial matters, or you will get some clients that will come in and say that I'm quite happy with what yeah. has been agreed, and, and therefore I want to formalise this. But that may into... not always be in their best interest. No, and that's where we would always advise that, that there should be um, disclosure between the parties. So where you've, moving on from that, and you, if you were to look at an element of disclosure, you could consider going to mediation. Now mediation is an opportunity for the parties to discuss in the presence of an independent, impartial third party details of their finances. And within that process, there is an element of disclosure. So you would disclose items such as the value of the house, the mortgage redemption, bank statements, details of valuations of any other assets that they have. And basically everything is laid out on the table and you look at how you would negotiate a settlement at that point. If an agreement can be reached, once again that takes you back to that agreement being embodied into what's called a, the consent order. Again, same process, lodged with the court. And once that is sealed by the court, that forms a legally binding agreement. There are circumstances um, where mediation does break down and, and we do have to send everybody for mediation to yeah, it's exhaust, a now, isn't it? It, yeah. it is, yeah. to exhaust that avenue um, before court proceedings are issued. You get circumstances where mediation does break down and in those circumstances the parties then need to consider do they instruct legal representatives to go through the process of disclosure where they complete what's, a, what's called a Form E document. Um, the Form E document, it, it looks like a very lengthy document, and but it, what it does is it allows the parties to set out their financial positions, which would include their income, their assets, their liabilities, and their pensions. And once that has been completed by both parties, it's simultaneously exchanged. And again, legal, parties' legal representatives assist with trying to negotiate a settlement. If all of what I've spoken about fails, then your last resort is issuing an application to the court. And through the court, again, you, you engage in disclosure, 
but the, you've got the court's intervention at this point and the court's assistance with dealing with matters and the court will assist with dealing with what questions need to be raised from the disclosure that the court that, that, that the parties have provided. There are three stages to the financial proceedings, which are the first hearing, there is a middle hearing known as an FDR hearing, and there is a final hearing. Now, we would hope that not all parties have to get to a final hearing, because at that point, it is out of the party's control as to how the assets are divided, and a court will decide how, how the assets are divided, and that could be, you know, that could be un what could be considered to be unfair to one party or something yeah. that the parties don't yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, but another party may, may, may yeah. like that. Yeah, that's, that's it's far better if parties can agree even within that court application process because they've got some control, haven't they, yeah. over the process. When, when would you say that most cases settle within that three-stage process? I would say that the majority of cases do settle at a FDR hearing or if they don't settle at an FDR hearing you have got that period between the middle hearing and the final hearing whereby negotiations can still take place so although you're in court proceedings it does not mean that you have to proceed to a final hearing if an agreement can be reached so if an agreement is reached between the two hearings then you can formalise that agreement and lodge your consent order and ask for your final hearing to be dispensed with. I think it's important as well for parties to understand that at that middle hearing, the financial dispute resolution appointment, because a judge does give an indication um, on what they consider to be a fair settlement and both parties will set out their stall and say, well, this is what I'm looking for, and the other party will say, well, that's not what I'm looking for, I'd like this. Um, that that's their opportunity to um, use that to settle. I think you're absolutely right. Um, if they can't do that at court, there's still that opportunity for them to try and reach agreement after that hearing, but before the final hearing. Yeah, there is, and that's a, a, a probably a less expensive way of dealing with it because going to a final hearing is going to increase the costs significantly of the parties and leave them in a position where they're not in control of what the outcome is going to be. Mm, absolutely. Um, so that, that, that's the, the, the process with dealing with financial matters, but there's also the, you've got to look at what, how, what the starting point is. Uh, and the starting point is taking all the assets and looking at it from an equalised position. So the starting point is always equality, and then you look at whether there should be any departure from equality in favour of one party or the other. Um, there are various factors which are looked at when, when considering what, what the outcome should be. Um, the factors that are taken into consideration are the ages of the parties, the length of the, length of the marriage, whether there are any dependent children, their income that they earn, their earning capacity. So they're all factors which are taken into consideration when you look at whether there should be any departure from a 50-50 split. I think they're referred to in, in, in a particular Act of Parliament, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's correct. It's a Section 25 factors which right. the court are relying upon. And a very important factor of all of those is, is looking at the party's needs mm. and what do they need to be able to live on. So essentially what you've got here is one marital pot which has now got to be divided into two, which has got to now meet two parties' needs and also look at whether there are any dependent children. And dependent children are really looked at first and foremost in all of this to, to ensure that there is as little disruption to them as possible. Um, 
if there are if there are no assets or very limited assets and I'm sure you advise on this, that we would still state that there should be a consent order drawn up which yes. dismisses both parties' financial claims against one, one another. And that the purpose of that really is so that, that there can't be any future financial claims made. I mean, you'll recall the case where um, the, the wife, uh, the, the husband and wife divorced, but they never dealt with their financial yeah. matters. And she, she, she came yeah. back after 20 years. And the husband was very, very successful. Very successful. Yes. And, yes. And, and the court allowed her to make that claim because the financial claims had never been dismissed. So even if it's just an order dismissing each party's financial claims, that should be dealt with alongside um, the divorce proceedings. It can be a very complex area um, mm. of law, so it is very important that independent legal yeah. advice is taken <coughs> on this to ensure that you achieve a fair outcome. Absolutely. I think parties need to be very mindful um, of that financial link that being married creates between um, spouses and the need to deal with that um, at the time that the divorce is going through. I think people can become very overwhelmed with the divorce and forget the finances, particularly those that perhaps do not have lots of assets that need to be dealt with at the time. But you know, if you like the horses or like to play the lottery, um, you really do need to make sure that you've got something in place, even if there aren't major assets between yeah. you, unless you want to share potentially that uh, lottery winners. Um, that's the risk, isn't found it? himself having to do well, that 10 years ago. That's the risk. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are many pitfalls in the process, aren't there, that, that need to be addressed throughout, really. And uh, obviously it's important that um, parties do receive the benefit of um, independent legal advice. Yeah, absolutely. And people should not view seeking advice as an aggressive step. We have a confidential relationship with our clients so that they can come along and speak to us. Um, you know, in that full knowledge that the other parties are going to know about it so they can just be information gathering. But actually, um, making that application to court is going to be right for some people. Yeah. That in itself should not be viewed as an aggressive step. Uh, uh, and the importance of having that independent legal advice is making sure the right advice, they've obtained the right advice, because once you've reached your agreement and once it has been formalised and sealed by the court, there is no going back yeah. on that agreement. Yeah. So, well, I'm sure you've had experiences of people, you know, was, um, about to sign on the dotted line or already have, and then they decide after the event to go and get advice. Yeah. And they've placed themselves in a difficult position. It does place you in a difficult position, yeah. Yeah. So, one final question. What happens if you've got an agreement and uh, it later um, transpires that one of the parties hasn't disclosed all of their assets and there might be, you know, large pot of money um, somewhere that you discovered but didn't know about at the time? Um, in those circumstances you can reopen a case but you would really need to look at, you would need to be fact specific about whether a case should be open, you would need to look at the level of assets, the passage of time that has elapsed since the order was sealed by the court and really from a cost perspective what it, whether it would be proportionate to reopen the case but this is something that can become very complex and legal advice would really need to be taken on that point as to whether the case should be reopened and, and the merits of it and as soon as possible yeah okay thank you Sergeant, for that so if uh, a client were to ask about uh, matters relating to children such as uh, custody, access and uh, maintenance, um, 
could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, um, custody and access are a terminology from uh, the Children Act 1999 and actually um, the courts don't use that terminology anymore. We did move on to residence, uh, i.e. where the child will live and contact, but very recently we now have what is called a child arrangements order, which is an umbrella term really for uh, where a child might live um, and who they might spend time with. Um, when the court's making decisions about children, their welfare is the paramount um, consideration. Um, what parties should really consider is that the court takes the view that children really should have a relationship with both parents, provided it is safe for the children to do so. And the court will then take into account a number of factors that we call in the profession uh, the welfare checklist. And this too comes from the Children Act 1989. Um, it, it sets out things such as the wishes and feelings of the children, but this is in light of their age and understanding. So you really, in that scenario, can set a child of five uh, in a different um, place from a child of, say, 15, in terms what, of... What sort of age would the court take into consideration a child's wishes and feelings? Well, I do a lot of advocacy, particularly um, in relation to children work, and um, it really does depend on the individual child. You may have an eight-year-old um, that is um, very aware of their circumstances, um, very able to express themselves, and if in a complicated children matter they're made a party to the proceedings and they have a guardian, um, their guardian may even express a view that this child actually is what we call um, gillip competent and can give their own instructions to their own solicitor. But then you could have a, a child um, of the same age that just doesn't have that level of understanding and, and really can't give that information to the court. All children have the ability um, to express th their wishes and feelings once they are um, fully verbal, but the court will place much more weight on a child of, say, 12 or 13, who if effectively can vote with their feet than they would a child of, say, eight. How, how are their wishes and feelings obtained? Well, there is the Children and Family Court Advisory Support Service. Uh, we call it CAFCAS for short. And um, they are um, professionals that usually have a background in social work uh, who are family court appointed advisors. And they are tasked with finding out what the wishes and feelings are of the children. Now this might be in a very simple way um, where they might prepare what's called a wishes and feelings report if directed by the court in children at proceedings and that is a short piece of work, they spend some time with the child, often we will encourage um, where we can the CAFCAS officers to see the child in a neutral environment such as school if they're of school age so that they've got the opportunity to express their wishes without feeling the pressure of the other, one of the parents being there. Um, but if there is a more formalised um, document being prepared for the court, which is called a Section 7 report, which looks very heavily at these um, welfare um, checklist items I'm discussing, um, in that sort of report, the CAFCAS officer will still take their wishes and feelings uh, into account, but in a much more detailed way, uh, looking at some of the other factors that I will, will take you through. What, what sort of time scales are we talking about for the, for the preparation of a CAFCAS report? Unfortunately, at the time of uh, filming, um, it is about 10 weeks 
um, for a CAFCAS report. And while that's unwelcome news, perhaps to those that are listening or watching, um, you may have already waited about six weeks to get to your first hearing and then to be told at your first hearing that it's going to be another ten weeks before a CAFCAS officer can provide a report would be disappointing. Um, it is a very thorough piece of work and I wish I were um, saying to my clients that uh, ten weeks would be spent doing that, that work with you but unfortunately the court system is just overwhelmed mm -hmm. with applications and the reason that it takes ten weeks is because there are too many people in the system. Um, but the CAFCAS officer will at some stage in contact uh, both parents um, and will begin to prepare their report. But that would only be in circumstances where there is a court application issue, so parties can reach their own agreement in relation to child arrangements. And they really should. That is um, the best option. I know that is impossible for all parties. Some have um, you know, such a difficult relationship with one another that they just can't reach um, agreement. But actually, if you want to have some control over the decisions for your family going forward, it is far better if you reach um, agreement. And mediation has its role to play and is a required step before you apply to court. And that is another medium that can be used to try and reach agreement. Because if you do find yourself applying to court, there is always that chance that a bench of magistrates or a judge is going to impose a decision and the likelihood is that somebody in the room isn't going to like it. Um, some of the other factors that the court considers with the welfare checklist is the child's needs. These can be physical, um, emotional, uh, educational needs. Um, and the court will then consider that against the backdrop of how the parents are able to meet those um, needs of the children. Um, the court will look at the likely effect of any change in the circumstances um, on the child and this is where I would say it's very important um, when relationships are broken down that you get arrangements in place very quickly for the children. If you aren't able to reach agreement, you should seek advice very early because what you don't want is a long period of time where the children have not seen one of the parents because you know, this is then going to mean a change in circumstances uh, for the children if we have to pretty much restart again. and Children need that regular contact with both parents, again, provided it's safe um, for them to do so. The court will um, look uh, at the um, issue of harm for children. Have they suffered any harm? Is there a risk of them suffering any harm in the future? Um, and, you know, I often have um, clients um, very concerned about various issues that might relate to um, the other parents' care. And it's important that um, parents are pragmatic when they're looking at, at these sorts of things because the court will only really attach weight to harm that is significant um, and would mean that perhaps one parent should be supervised or supported in their contact in some way. It's very rare that the court would take the view um, that there should be no contact at all because of that presumption that children should have a relationship with both parents. Um, the court has a range of powers available to it, so it will look at that range of powers when deciding what they consider is in the best interests of children. And so really the court's thinking, should I be making an order that this, these children live with one parent and spend time with the other? Um, we have more commonly now shared care for um, parents 
Um, they can also look at um, whether there are any specific issues, often that's things like you know, a change of a child's name. Um, the court also is able to consider what's called a prohibited steps order, which is um, an order a party would seek if they need to stop a particular course of action. Um, my um, probably most um, common um, occurrence of this is when for example, one party wishes to take the child out of the country and the other parent isn't convinced that it's a holiday and they're more worried about that child going and not coming back and feel that they really do need the assistance of the court and make an application. Um, it's important for parties to understand that our courts are very overwhelmed with applications at the moment and it can take about 12 months to um, conclude a child matter. Um, and that's if it's fairly straightforward. If it's more complicated, there will be more hearings built into that process and it will take even longer. And I very much reiterate what I um, have already said in that it's very important for parties to reach agreement um, wherever they can. Get early advice because if things are breaking down and a court application is going to be necessary, delay is going to be um, not very good for the children you know, in that scenario. And the court does very much accept that. What, what happens if, um, once you've got your uh, agreement in place, you know, one party doesn't abide by the terms of that agreement? So obviously there's, there's a lot of acrimony in, 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 in these separations and you know, one party says, well, I'm not, I'm not facilitating this, this contact. Well, I think that's quite common. I often find that people have reached agreement and it's the, the breakdown of that agreement that sometimes prompts them to come and see one of us. Um, and in that scenario, if there aren't any orders in place and you need to make a court application, but if there is a court um, order in place, you should take very quick action because if you want to apply to enforce that order, again, delays are going to be very good for the children, um, but also you need to get it into the court very quickly so that you can establish that um, enforcement process. And again, that can be lengthy. So no, I was you going to say, do you find that that delay is, is often a problem in, even in enforcement applications? I would and my top tip is this, if you have an order in your favour and you delay for say a number of months, you are giving way to the other party um, making a, what we call a, a cross application which is just them making an application mm -hmm. at the same time yeah. to vary your order because if, you, if that person hasn't seen the children perhaps for several months they might well say well they need to be reintroduced whereas if you act quickly um, you might be able to um, apply to enforce and have the contact reinstated sooner rather than later. Yeah. It's really about putting the children first and foremost, isn't it? It absolutely is, yes. And um, you know, parties should use mediation wherever they can to try and air out some of the differences that they might have about um, the way they care for children. Parties have to have, sometimes have an acceptance that how one parent might care for the children could be very different to how another parent cares for the children. Provided they're not at risk of harm, how can the parties move forward? Another I mean, point of dispute is, is child maintenance. Mm -hmm. um, how would you approach dealing with child maintenance the, and the advice that would be provided? I know it can be intermingled with the financial side of things very much so. also. Yes, um, parties should understand that actually the court doesn't have um, what we call jurisdiction, the power um, to deal with um, child maintenance um, in most circumstances. It's dealt with by the child maintenance service and the rates are set by law. Parties have the option of having child maintenance set out in their financial order and if you do that, 
you are um, giving jurisdiction to the court for the year that that order is in place. So if your circumstances are one that may change, a party might want to think about that um, and the appropriateness of whether it should be dealt with by the child maintenance service or whether it should be um, incorporated into a, a financial um, order. Um, parties should also um, be mindful that the child maintenance service um, is going to be dealing with their matter and the need to try and reach agreement because now the child maintenance service will apply charges um, if they're going to facilitate your agreement so it's better for all concerned if you can reach agree agreement and the child maintenance um, website is you know pretty good it's got a calculator on there for parties yeah, the calculator to use. is very good isn't it yes, yes. it gives a very good indication and it means that parties are clear about what their their liability is um, and a person uh, who may have very recently separated should um, look at that as soon as they can so that they understand where they are. So to wrap all of this up, what top tips would we give to our clients for a good divorce? Well, Sergio, I'm sure you and Kevin would agree with me that there is no such thing as a, a good divorce, but we certainly can assist our clients in trying to um, reduce the stress that divorce can uh, bring about and uh, bring the temperature down for the parties. So I would say uh, the first top tip really is um, to secure the benefit of specialist legal advice as quickly as possible. Uh, divorce or separation is, is life-changing, so it's important that legal advice uh, is taken which will help deal with matters in a straightforward uh, manner as possible. Number two, try to put emotions aside. Um, this is a stressful time in life when emotions can run high. It's best to try to avoid conflict and try and resolve things in a constructive manner. Number three, the children's needs. It can be very difficult for children. Uh, they are adjusting to their parents not being together uh, anymore. Uh, and emotions can run high for parents. And this can often lead to confusion around what you might consider to be in the best interest of the children. Number four, um, try to be realistic and try to manage uh, uh, expectations. This in many respects speaks for itself. A settlement must be fair and must provide for both parties. Adopting unrealistic uh, aspirations can lead to prolonged litigation and unnecessary costs. Number five, be prepared. You may not just need the advice of your um, solicitor, you may also need some specialist advice if you consider the topics that we've covered. For example, that may be an accountant, a financial advisor, you may need a will and to consider some estate planning. If you have lots of assets, you might need some advice from some even more specialised advisors.